16. <clears throat> Final victory, the defeat of death. As we get very near the end of this chapter, but we'll speak of in it uh, one more time, Lord willing, next week. But uh, last week, by way of review, we saw that our res- resurrected bodies will be the same, yet far superior. In, fa- in fact, perfect and in full capacity. And I'll, I'll just kind of repeat, maybe expand on that a little bit more today as well. But we'll see they'll be eternally durable, full potential, superior power. Uh, access to all realms, both physical and spiritual. And as I said last week, I, I would just surmise that the eternal state will not be a physical realm and then an unseen spiritual realm, but that all those will mesh into one. There will just be the kingdom of God, uh, and uh, we will be uh, experience all of that. There will be no, no part of it hidden from us uh, anymore. Um, then uh, I've also, remember I did this with Second uh, Peter 3. I want to do it today with John chapter 6, verses 39 and following. Then I'll do it a little bit later on. I, I'm just, when there are passages of scripture that I think show the continuity of Paul's understanding of what happens in the next thing that we're waiting for, that is the day of the Lord when he comes back to effect this change in our bodies, and so this, I think, is a passage that also shows what I believe to be the, uh, helps us understand what's going to happen. It says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we see him talking about the same thing Paul is expanding on in chapter 15, the day in which we shall be raised, and we find out here that that's the last day, which is exactly what Paul said, right? We saw last week that's exactly what Peter has said, that that's the last day, that that's the day we're waiting for, and the second coming, and that's considered to be the last day. We'll we'll stop there. So last week we began to see the glories of our resurrected bodies as Paul contrasts what we have now with what we will have then. And the last comparison we see here in our text today that, that kind of explains that, where where our natural bodies came from, its limitations, and where we're getting our spiritual bodies from, our spiritual life. He contrasts that, as he's already brought up earlier, remember, uh, between the first and the second Adam. And so he will bring that in. And that also not only uh, shows the connection we have with Adam and Christ physically, spiritually, sinfully, and, and righteous, <clears throat> but it also explains really how the gospel works, how our salvation works. Just as we inherited sin in Adam, we inherit a righteousness in Christ. Adam's sin we did not, but we are guilty. We got his guilt from that. Jesus was righteous. We are not, but we will get our righteousness from his work. And so, again, it's, it's where Paul expands more fully on that in chapter 5 of Romans. <clears throat> and so Adam gave us our physical body. A second Adam will give us our spiritual body, uh, which kind of brings everything uh, that he has uh, together to this point. 
So in verse 45, he begins by quoting Genesis 2-7, where we learn that Adam be, uh, was created and became a living uh, soul. Now, what, he, what he's saying there is that that's when Adam was, uh, his, he, he was given a body, but that's where he became self-aware. He was given life, physical life. And so <clears throat> he says here that the... Uh, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You have to just think about that for a moment. Adam was given life. The first Adam was given life, and he became physically alive. The second Adam uh, did not come into being. He was not given life. He was the second person of the Trinity, of course, has always been a life-giving spirit. But that's really not what I think what Paul is referring to here, because... This is more has more to do with what we receive in Christ. And so this second Adam, Jesus Christ, there was a point in time, it says, where he became a life-giving spirit. Yet not in the sense of his creative work, which really is what, he's the one who gave Adam his life, his life. But when he was resurrected and his work was finished, his, his office now is to give life to give spiritual life, to give the new life, to give this eternal life to people. So it was something that uh, happened with in, in the incarnation. Jesus had to be incarnated. Well, the, the second person of the Trinity had to be, become Jesus, become that incarnate God-man in order to give a life-giving, to be a life-giving spirit. So we receive something in Adam and something in Christ. Now, while some don't think that this is to be taken as something that literally happened, um, well, excuse me, I, I got ahead of myself. <clears throat> Paul's point here is that Adam was created from matter and became bound to earth, as the next few verses will point out. Uh, in Genesis 3.22, of course, we know that he fell, and it's said there that uh, Adam and Eve were not allowed to eat of the tree of life lest they live forever. And some people don't believe that that's a, something that was literally that literally would have happened was all symbolic. Well, I, I don't believe that because if, if that's symbolic, then who knows what else is symbolic in that passage, right? I think that the point there is that in Adam fell and their bodies became subject to death, but they were also sinners. And so they were not allowed to eat of the tree of life because the last thing that would be good for them is for them to live forever in their sinful bodies, right? And so in Christ, in his work, he has come to reverse all that. <clears throat> we shall live forever, yes, but not in the sinful body. We will receive a, not only our, our souls will be renewed, but our bodies will be renewed as we've been talking about. <clears throat> and so... The tree of life is a type of Christ. As we eat of him, we receive eternal life. And so God, I don't think, allowed them to eat of a physical tree because there was a better design that he had for mankind. Uh, it would not have been good had we be born if we were born into this world with bodies that last forever, but we're still sinners, right? We, we, have, we need a complete change, and that's what Paul is talking about here. And so the last Adam is a life-giving spirit in that he gives us spiritual heritage both in body and spirit. I mean, we receive the new life, but part of Paul's point here is that we'll also receive 
new body, not just internally the spirit, but the body. Um, <clears throat> Romans 5.21, that uh, where again, this is all explained in, in great detail, but it, remember that it says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Adam, sin reigned unto death. In Christ, uh, righteousness leading to eternal life will reign. Christ undid what Adam did. Adam sinned. Christ didn't sin. Christ did what was right. And in that, gained life and righteousness for us. And of course, for this to happen, sin had to be taken care of. And so the underlying reason for all this is not just Paul's talk about how that someday we will receive better bodies and uh, enter into the heavenly. But that the first thing that had to take place, we, we had to be uh, forgiven of our sins. We had to be made righteous. Because rotten stuff, as is, is he's saying here, rot, sin, decay, none of that is fit for the presence of God. And so it all had to be taken care of, both spiritually and physically. So gaining heaven isn't just about us enjoying a better existence. It's certainly that. But it is so that we might display the redeeming work of God and glorify him in our very being. And so verse 46 basically says that Adam was a prototype of our physical bodies and Christ is a prototype of what we shall be. It says... But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. Now, again, he brought this subject up back in verses 22 to 23, the first Adam, second Adam. But in this verse, he says something that I find to be pretty profound and interesting. On the surface, it, it, it might seem kind of obvious, but the first thing he does here is explain why we find ourselves in this world and waiting for the resurrection. Notice what he says here in verse 46. It seems to be, it's all about the order of things. First of all, he says, there has to be not the spiritual, but there has to be natural. There was first Adam, and then there was Christ. First, we're born into this world physically, but then we have a spiritual body to look forward to. He's talking about the order of events, in a sense, right? So, the first thing he's doing is explaining why we find ourselves in this world waiting for the resurrection. It is God's will for us to live first on earth, to be redeemed, to serve him, to experience the physical, and then to look forward to the reward, to look forward to the spirit. So, that's the first thing he says, and again, that's kind of obvious. But it reminds us that, that um, we the, our reward comes later. We're, we're born. We, we have to live in the body of sin now. But better is coming. But he also makes the point then that men are created first with physical bodies and after that they will have spiritual ones. I mean, that, that's kind of what he's saying here. That's the point. And, and what I find interesting about that and maybe important too to some degree is that what we learn from this, if, if we were first physical and then spiritual, that we did not exist in heaven as angels or in some uh, form that we are, cannot remember. 
we came into existence when we were born, when we were conceived, when we were given bodies. And, and, and of course, why that's important is that it gets rid of the kind of the silly idea that we existed before our births. That some believe that we, you know, well, the, you know, if you have a birthmark, your mother told you, uh, that's where the angel kissed you before you left heaven. Well, we said, I, you know, we had a daughter with the birthmark on our arm, and I'm pretty sure we, you know, told her that. I thought she knew better. But it didn't happen. You, you're not up there. You know, we're not Mormons. We don't believe there's spiritual babies up there and that they need a body. We came into existence at our conception. And again, it just kind of saves us from um, maybe getting some of these false doctrines that are out there and being gullible. In verses 47 through 48, Adam, he says, in Adam we are bound to this fallen world, but in Christ we have been freed to live in the heavenly realm. So he goes on to say, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the, the man, a man made of dust, a man who will return to dust, a man that was limited in that sense. The second man is from heaven. He, yeah, he, he was given a body, but we know he existed from heaven. Again, this is a, a, a a verse that makes it very plain that Jesus was not just a man. He existed in heaven. He existed before time began as God. And he came down and was given a, uh, a body. He was from heaven. <clears throat> and so, in Adam we are bound to this fallen world. But in Christ we shall be free to live in the heavenly realm. He came down so that we might be, have access to God. Now, whatever that might be, whatever the heavenly realm might be, I don't know. Uh, we can really only speculate. Paul was not allowed to, remember, relate what he saw when he was caught up into the third heaven. I can't wait to find out. I trust that all of us already have see evidence in ourselves, though, that, that, that experience has begun to take place, that renewal has begun, first in our souls, in our minds, we, uh, we see a connection to Christ, a union to Christ in the Spirit as we've been given a new birth. Not in our bodies, because our bodies, it, once you get saved, your body doesn't change. It doesn't, it doesn't start to get better. It, it's just the same as it always was. Of course, the whole point of this chapter is we know that our body's transformation hasn't begun. It will take place at death, or when Christ comes back. But we know inwardly that transformation has begun. Right? So we get a little idea of the greatness of our new bodies then as we read of what Christ is able to do after the resurrection. Remember, he, he could appear and reappear. He, he moved about in a spiritual realm. Uh, he was unaffected by the physical in that sense. Uh, in in uh, Acts 1, 1, it says, 1, 11, it says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking to heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven, this Jesus, as you see him, will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The point there is that he's going to come back in in the same way he left, but it's the same Jesus, the same body. It's the body we're going to get. And there are a couple of the verses that kind of help explain this. Philippians 3.21 who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So, 
the power that he's got to reign over all creation is not that we're going to have the same power, but that power is what is he's going to work in us in our new bodies. Uh, now, I want you to notice here a little theme. First uh, John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him, see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so, um, John makes the same point that Paul makes, that we saw Peter making, remember in uh, last week in Second Peter 3, that part of Peter's purpose in telling them what's going to happen when the when the when Christ comes back in the new heavens and the new earth is that it should cause us to live in light of that, right? And that's what uh, John does here in his epistle in First John. It is the hope that we shall someday be like Christ and commune with Christ that should be purifying us. And that's a purifying effect. And of course, Paul's been bringing this out through all chapter fifteen. So you see the continuity here. Uh, that, that this is not this is something that's important. God doesn't save us just to uh, be like the world. He, he saves us to be different, to be pure, to be a, a people that love holiness, a love to do right, that want to be like Christ. And I don't make it, I wouldn't make any bones about that. You know, there are a lot of people that say, well, that's legalism. Well, I'm sorry. Then Paul and John and Peter were legalists. That's, if that's your definition. Of course, we know that's a lot of nonsense. So here John makes the same point. And so the graveyards of the redeemed are kind of like planted fields waiting to sprout to the glorious harvest. When Christ comes back, the graves will be opened. Now, I, I prefer, all things being equal, that to be buried. I know that we live in a, you know, used to be for millennia, your parents died, you took them out the back, someplace you'd set aside their own property, and you buried them, right? Or something like that. And, and that's not possible for most people anymore because of the, the, the great numbers of earth of people on the earth. So I don't I don't make an issue about cremation. You know that's something I think is, that's something that people got to make a mind up for themselves. I don't I don't think you can make a, a real case in the Bible that it's wrong. But all things being equal, I like the fact of being buried because it it, it looks like. Someone at rest, someone who is in a temporary resting place or waiting for Christ to come back and to lift, to give them life and to wake them up as it were and to give them a body. So there's just a great picture there of our waiting for the Lord to come back that you kind of lose in cremation. You're just a, a bunch of dust in a pot, right? You know, so I think cremation is very unfortunate. But again, the times we live in, I think that it's one of those things we've got to deal with. But anyway, in verse 50, we're given a description of our glorified bodies. And he describes a day in which they will, will happen. And he kind of changes, he starts kind of getting into his closing thoughts here. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, that is the, the physical body, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's about the old man, the, the old flesh and blood. Obviously, we're going to have a physical bodies, but they're not going to be, I, I doubt there's going to be blood flowing through them because 
That's that's physical life. That's temporal life. And 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 I saw it's probably going to be different. But we know here what he's talking about is the bodies that we're in now cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, because these bodies are prone to rot. So, and they're going to rot when you die. You're you're, you're going to rot away. And so we need something better. That's, I think that's what he's saying there. In that day of death, death will not just be removed then. In other words, it won't just be that there will be no more death, but everything that has died before shall receive life. Death will be undone, we might say here in verse 50. The imperishable uh, does not inherit the imperishable. So he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So, he's saying that this is what happens to those who have died, but he says, I'm going to tell you something that the Old Testament really didn't deal with. It mentioned, it kind of referred to, but then explained it, because I want you to understand, it's a mystery that I'm going to expand on and explain that there will, when Christ comes back, everybody who has died, they don't have to, or is alive, don't, they don't have to die so they can get their bodies. That the power of God can give them new bodies even though they never die. You know, because why would, how could God be limited by all that? <clears throat> so, um, I wanted to uh, quote somebody, something I read here, uh, some time ago. Just a second here, let me look it up. And, and, and the uh, who wrote this is not given, but it says he says there is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, he calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to the eyes that never weep. His arguments are none to are, his arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of this appeal. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him, everybody fears him. His name? Death. Every tombstone is his pulpit, every newspaper prints his text. And someday every one of you will be his sermon. It's a fact of life. And what Paul is saying that the time is coming, well, that will no longer be. And it's just, it, you know, we, we cannot fathom that because death is all around us. Death is what we're, we know it's coming for us. And so instead of denying or ignoring the fact, as some Christians are prone to try to soften it and not talk about it and don't want to be around it. Uh, it is it is not something that uh, we, we, we should run from because we have the victory over death. We'll get into that uh, next week. But we have been uh, promised to be raised from it that, it, that it will only be a temporary thing. Christians should be singing, not about death as such, but, but about the fact that we have been saved from it. It's no accident that in Handel's Messiah, he includes a chapter, this chapter, in his work, the Messiah. Because this is 
This is the hope, the blessed hope that we have, that we shall someday be given eternal life and raised from the dead. So while these bodies are wonderfully suited for life on earth, which I think is what he's saying here too, they are not suited for life in the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom of God is a place without sin. And so all the limitations of sin will be removed, as well as the limitations of this physical world that we've already talked about, whether it be gravity, whether it be decay, whether it be uh, the need for sustenance and water and all, all that, none of that will mean anything in, the, in, the, in this world. This is the kingdom of God in its consummate sense, no longer just within our hearts, but now in the eternal state. Now there will be nothing but the kingdom of God. No rebels and no sin that needs to be taken care of, no death that has to be eradicated. The time is coming when all that will take place. And so no longer just in our hearts, but in the eternal state. No longer suffering amid evil, but victorious over it. Living in the, in the, uh, the, the final form of it. Even Christ's body had to be transformed before going back to the Father. Flesh and blood cannot inherit eternity because that which is decaying has no place uh, in a place that, cha- that never changes, right? That lasts forever. And so our bodies are dependent on air and gravity and food and so forth. But our new ones will be able to enjoy, I think, be able to enjoy food and drink. I mean, we're, we're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. I believe that we'll be able to enjoy tastes and smells and all that kind of stuff. But, but in a perfect way. And so let me just summarize really the, the last two uh, messages uh, with the, looking at some of the points that he makes. First of all, that the former body is sown in a perishable state. You know, it's, it's, it, it can't last forever. The resurrected body is raised in an imperishable body. Our physical bodies are perishable, which is why we're subject to aging and disease and death. Our resurrected bodies are imperishable. There'll be nothing that can hurt it. You can't even stub your toe. You can't. You can't get a paper cut. It's an amazing thing to think about. They won't be subject to corruption or death. Secondly, the physical body, earthly body, is sown in dishonor. The resurrected bodies is raised in glory. There's a sense in which sown. I think the physical body will die. Will be put into the ground. It's subject to rotting and to uh, to decay, it, it's, it's subject to disease, which causes rotting and death, right? There's nothing very noble about the process of dying. Uh, even death itself, you, you, you begin to decay immediately. So with few exceptions, we put dead bodies away from us, out of our sight, because, uh, you know, you know, we all know people have lost loved ones and they don't want to let go, but at some point you got to because you're not going to want to see them after a few days. You're not going to want to smell them. You're not going to want, you know, so you, you got to let go. And, and that's that's just the, the reality of things. So the Old Testament Israelites, contact with the dead body made one unclean because another reason you got to get let go is because they'll become unhealthy for you to be around. Death is defiling. Sin is defiling. But the resurrected body is characterized by glory, not dishonor, but by perfection. There's nothing unclean or unhealthy about it. Thirdly, the physical body is sown in weakness, but the new one is raised in power. The frailty of the human body may be concealed for a time, 
you can exercise and eat healthy and, and you can do keep your body looking pretty good for a long time, but it's coming. There's no way around it. And it'd be harder and harder to hide. Because our bodies die as it succumbs to deterioration and disease and the weakness. But our resurrected bodies will be characterized by power. It will be perfect and able to do all things and never be, be diminished in any way. Then, uh, fourthly, the uh, physical body is sown a natural body. The resurrected body is raised a spiritual body. The physical body is a natural body while the resurrected body is spiritual. It, it's physical, made out of material, but it's not subject to nature. The physical body is an earthly body. It, it can only it, it can only live on earth. You, you can't it can't live in the in the heavens. It can't live in space. Now we can make little capsules and suits that the make the atmosphere livable, right? But we understand what you mean. You, you, we need air. We need all the things that are here on earth. <clears throat> and so our present bodies suit us well for living on earth. Our earthly bodies will not suit us for heaven. Uh, we'll, we'll, we won't need air in heaven, right? And all that kind of stuff in, in, in gravitation. And then fifthly, the origin, nature, destiny of both, the natural body and the spiritual body, can only be understood in terms of the relationship of the first Adam and the second Adam, which is what we talked about to begin with. We, we understand where our natural body came from. We understand why it's in the condition that it's in. And everything that Paul is saying about the future can be traced back to Christ, that second Adam. We get our, we'll get our glorified bodies from him. We, we get our, uh, the, the eradication of sin. And our future all comes from Jesus Christ. And so in verses 42 to 44, it contrasts the nature of this earthly physical body with that of our heavenly spiritual body. And verses 45 to 49 then link our earthly bodies with the first Adam and our, he- our heavenly resurrected bodies with Jesus Christ, the last Adam. And I hope that, that all that uh, makes more, you know, you have a good understanding of what all that means, both in what it means for our future body as well as our spiritual souls and our eternal life, right? And so in verse 51 then, we see here changing the subject. Well, not really changing the subject, but 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 answering the question that uh, you know what happens to those who aren't dead when Christ comes back. He's anticipating that question. Will they have to be slain so they can be raised again? And the answer is no. The Lord is not limited here. He can change us even while we're alive. Now it's interesting again going back to people's theology. Doctrinal stances, uh, they go to Hebrews 9, is it, that says that it's appointed a man once to die. And uh, so everybody's got to die. And they, so they say, well, there's only two people that never died. And uh, that was Elijah and Enoch. And they, so they say they're, you know, the two witnesses in Revelation because they've got, they got, they're being brought down because everybody's got to die. And they did, they escaped death. Can you imagine Enoch and, and, and Elijah in heaven with Christ, knowing that, well, someday you're going back to earth, back to your old nasty body, and you've got to die. And that, you know. So it's just kind of sad for that. But if 
fails also because Paul says, no, not everybody's got to die. Yes, the, the, the normal way things work is that people are, are going to die because death, the sin has brought death. But here Paul says, no, everybody who's alive when Christ comes back, none of them are going to die. They're going to be changed in a moment. So, so all that, you know, people, we, we sometimes get silly in our understanding of God's word. It seems like Paul, like many first century uh, saints, assumed that Christ was going to come back during his lifetime. Notice what he says here in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Well, turns out Paul did go to sleep, right? He was beheaded. But this is the, this is one of the things we say at funerals. It's a promise. We, whoever the, that generation is, not all Christians will fall asleep. Not all Christians will die in the Lord. Some will, some will remain. And when that happens, we shall be caught up in the air. <clears throat> and so Paul gives light that had not been known uh, at this point. And then in verse 52, he says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. <clears throat> so, here he gives us a, uh, this as he did, as we've seen in First Thessalonians, we'll, we'll look at that again in a moment here. He's explaining to us how what all is going to happen. And he, first of all, he says that when that happens, there's going to be a trumpet sound. Now, the dispensationalists, I think, have a problem here. Uh, because what if you're reading this during the tribulation? What if you're reading this during the millennial kingdom, thousand year reign? Well, this isn't, it doesn't even, it's all taking place in the past. And it, it doesn't tell you what's going to happen to you. You're, you know, what's happening when you die? What's going to happen to you at the end of the tribulation or the end of the millennial reign? So, if this is just the one general coming of the Lord, the general resurrection and general judgment, then it makes sense. It applies to everybody. So I, I think that just shows, I think, the weakness of a dispensational understanding of some of this. <clears throat> uh, John MacArthur says that this, when Paul says this at the last trumpet, he says, this isn't the last trumpet, but the last one for Christians living there in the church age. So again, I've got my theology, my little system, so this can't be the last trumpet. Well, Paul says the last trumpet. Well, no, it can't be the last trumpet, because we know we've got a thousand, seven years left, right? So there's got to be something else for other Christians, but this is just for the Christians who have died before the rapture. And I said, well, I mean, fine, if you want to believe that, but I, I just think that when you say that out loud, you begin to realize the problems with it. Why doesn't Paul go on to explain about the souls who died during the tribulation, those who died during the millennial reign, if, the, if such things take place? But instead, as we think about our text here, and, um, well, here's another, uh, another verse I wanted to just run by you to kind of, I think that it kind of supports what I've been saying. This is in John 5, where he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. It sounds a lot like what Paul is talking about. Not that uh, this is for some people, but there's other people, other saints got something else to look forward to. All who are dead will hear the voice 
and come out. And notice, so it's not, not just the saints, but at that day, at that time, the lost as well. Uh, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So it sounds like one coming, uh, one resurrection, one judgment. All right there in John 5, 28 and 29. But then, last thing, we're just about done here. First Thessalonians 4, 14. We've uh, read through this passage before, but I want us to do it again. Because I want us to see the connection, because Paul wrote this as well. And again, see the continuity. Uh, the word continuity, I've used that two or three times a day, but I, I guess I don't use it a lot. But it's a very important word when it, in concept when it comes to understanding the Bible. The continuity, that it, it all comes, it, it all says the same thing. It all flows together. It's not contradictory. And so, there's a couple of things to think about. First of all, it doesn't sound like a secret rapture. Because we've been told that the thing, the next thing to happen is, is, you know, I believe in a rapture. The Bible is very clear. We, we, Paul has just talked about it. We're all going to be caught up. The trumpet's going to sound. We're all going to be caught up, right? The dead first and then us. So there's the rapture. The rapture means to be caught up. But the secret rapture is, by that they mean that, well, there's going to be a, uh, the Lord's going to come back and, you know, you, the Left Behind series, Christians are going to be caught up, and the world's got no idea what's going along. They're just going to all of a sudden say, hey, where everybody go, right? So it's secret. But what does it say here? Well, it's going to, first of all, it's going to be a trumpet sound. Well, if there's a big trumpet sounding, then that's not secret. I mean, there's something, it's something you hear, right? Um, so verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are not left, who are left, excuse me, until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. So there will be this this voice, this, this shout of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and then the, at that time the dead in Christ will raise, be raised first. So in verse, first of all, it doesn't sound secret, there's noise, there's shouting, and there's a and there's a trumpet sounding. In verse 15, it's referred to as the coming of the Lord. And there's no reason to see this as the coming before the second coming. Otherwise, the second coming is only the third coming. In other words, if, if this is called the coming of the Lord, then you've got the first coming when Jesus came to earth in the incarnation. Then the second coming, which the dispensationalists say is going to happen at the end of the tribulation. That's where the resurrection and all this is going to take place. But here Paul says this is the coming. So you've really got three comings if, if you're going to take that stance. And again, I think that this just shows that why none of that works. And then finally in verses 15 and 14 and 15, we read that the dead will accompany Christ at his return and that we will be joined with them in, their, in our glorified bodies. That they'll be caught up, given a, a all the saints who have died previously will come with Christ. They'll receive their bodies, and then we shall be caught up after that and receive our bodies. You know, it, it'll be instantaneous, but there's an order there. And Paul seems to make it an important point. He, he, it sounds like he thinks that's important, that the ones who died first 
have a certain honor that those who had never died don't get. Well, let me just speculate as to what that might mean. The the reason why they get first, the, the resurrect, resurrected body first, is because they've done something that we have not done. They have remained faithful even to death. Through death. That doesn't mean that they were martyred. But they, they died. They went through the experience of death and yet and they trusted the Lord. They had to go through that. Whereas we have not. Because let's face it. You know, I don't think there's anybody here at this point. Maybe some have. We haven't been in our deathbed yet. So we haven't proven our faith in a sense. We haven't laid there knowing that death was a, was a few days or a few hours away and and uh, rested in Christ and gave a great testimony of the Lord, right? We haven't had that experience. We haven't had to go through it yet. And not everybody will. I mean, some will die instantly in a car crash. Uh, some of us will die sedated and out of it, which is, I mean, it's, it's kind of good and bad. You know, you kind of understand it. But some will die and they'll see it coming. And they'll have the opportunity to to be faithful to the end and to talk about Christ and to be an example to others. And it, is, and it seems like Paul is saying that, that to, to, to experience that, you get a special honor. You get your body before the rest. And so I would just you know, speculate that is perhaps why. But regardless of that, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. And so I want to encourage you to not die kicking and screaming. It's not that we have to look forward to it, because we said that it's not the fear of death, it's the fear of the process of death. That, that, no fun. But, but to die in the Lord, to die well, I, I don't want to die kicking and screaming, full of fear. I want to be able, if, if the Lord allows the circumstances to happen, to die with a smile on my face. To die telling others that uh, I will be with the Lord and to express my love for the Lord and and, and to die like that as, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, like Paul died, no doubt, as we read about him. You know, if a child could go to street, go to sleep full of anticipation because he's going to get some gifts at Christmas morning, why in the world can't we go to sleep in Christ knowing what's awaiting us, right? One last thing, that's in verse 52 here. He says that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the word moment is where we get the word Adam from. And there, understand, the word Adam comes from They knew that you could only divide everything down so much and that at some point you had the, that, that which couldn't be divided, the smallest thing. And that's where we get the word Adam from. Right? Well, we, we know now that the Adam's really not the smallest thing, right? But that's, that's, that's what they use the word for, the smallest thing. And that's what Paul uses here. He says, a moment of time, the twinkle of an eye. In a sense, it can't be measured. In other words, you're going to have to be conscious, and the next conscious moment, you'll be a different person. There'll be no time for repentance. When we see it coming, it'll just be. It'll all take place in a moment. And so, that is, he's talking about how fast that change will occur. The change is not the usual word for being transformed, but it, it, it can be translated exchange. Well, in, in that moment, we'll exchange this corruptible body for a body that, w- that we've been talking about here that is perfect. 
No, no waiting in line for the change. There'll be no, the world won't see it coming. The, the, no, the world won't be able to say, oh look, uh, this is, this great change is taking place. I'm going to repent now. No. When Christ comes back, it'll be like a thief in the night. And, uh, we'll, I hope that each one here is ready for that coming. And you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you don't have to fear death and the judgment anymore. All right? We'll stop there today. Any questions?